If you want to support this podcast and get a full ad-free episode, sign up to Headstuff Plus. Welcome, gather round the fireside and listen to a tale of Yon Makuku Cullen, Deirdre of the Sorrows, Grawn, your wail. From giants right down to fairies, above the trooping and solitary, and close to us, sometimes scary. Anything goes by the fireside. Yeah. Fireside, the Puka Fireside, Meryl Fireside. Kings and queens fighting heroes, don't you run from the fun, there's no need to hide. Sit by the fireside. Mm-hmm. Fireside. Hello and welcome to Fireside, the Irish storytelling podcast. Each episode of Fireside, we take a story from folklore and mythology, we retell it, have a chat about the tale itself and about the craft, culture and history of storytelling. My name is Kevin C. Olahan and I am your host and I am also your Fireside Bard. Welcome to episode 17 of Fireside, if you can believe it, 17 episodes. I'm recording to you from Orlando, Florida. Those who listen to the podcast regularly uh, will know that the last time I recorded, last week when I recorded a podcast, I was also in Orlando. Believe you me, I have not been here since. I uh, I was in Orlando for a day. I'm on tour around the States at the moment with a show called World of Musicals. I was on tour with an Irish music show called Celtic Nights up until a few weeks ago, and we've transitioned into World of Musicals now. We're currently in the midst of eight shows around Florida before we move into North Carolina, South Carolina, and finish up the East Coast. Um, But it has been absolute paradise here in the Florida sunshine. We had a day off in Orlando this time last week. And since then, we have had about four or five shows all around the state going right down south, uh, right back up north towards like Jacksonville. We're in West Palm Beach. We're in Boca Raton. We've been in incredible places, done incredible shows in beautiful theaters to fantastic audiences. We've bizarrely enough, a few of our shows have been in these um they've been in these retirement communities um for for rich for rich older people and uh, well to be fair like they they seem to have not all been some of them were very very affluent areas and some of them seem to be more modestly that that you or I could actually hope to achieve to as well but just this entire community of uh this like as as an Irish person, this is totally bizarre to me. I think when Irish people get older, they might go to the the beach a little bit more often. But in America, it just seems to be the culture that everyone just ships up and goes to Florida for six months of the year, and that's just where all of the old people go. And I I'm not knocking it. It's a very admirable lifestyle. They just they seem because they seem to to live long. These these older people, I I saw ages I didn't think was possible here. And they were the people who were jumping to their feet and clapping along to the show. They were, no joke, the best audiences we've had. I've I've never encountered an experience afterwards. We'd go out and we'd do a meet and greet after the show. And it was suffice to say, like, it was the first time I've genuinely felt overwhelmed by people coming up. Uh, which is a lovely thing. It's really nice. It's a really nice feeling there. Uh, but that, of course, has nothing to do with the podcast. But just always, I always like to keep in touch um, to let... 
people know who listen to this what I'd be up to as well. Especially because this is now the, is it the fourth? Is it the fifth? It's the fifth episode of Fireside I've recorded on the road. I normally record it from the Headstuff Podcast Studios in Dublin, um, but I've been using my Zoom, my Zoom and my SM58 mics on my laptop to record and send out the podcast. Um, so the quality is shifts from time to time, but I think we've, I think we're heading a, a sweet stride now. I've got my pop shield, I've got my tights, my tights on a close on a coat hanger, my very sophisticated system, which uh, I hold in front of my mouth for the duration of the podcast, uh, which I, I hardly notice now that I kind of I'm in the position with it. I have been keeping it in my suitcase, and I'm now starting to suspect that the tights are going to need a wash soon, and despite the fact that I have not been wearing them, I can assure you of that. Um, not that it would have been a bad thing if I had, but I absolutely haven't. I'm going to keep going now. I'm going to launch right into the story. We are, first of all, if you are a returning listener, thank you so much for continuing to listen. And if you're a brand new listener, you are very welcome uh, to the podcast. I apologize if that was a very roundabout way. You're probably thinking, get to the stories. Where's the folklore? What's this talk about Florida? Well, I'm getting to the folklore now. This story is an American folktale to die in. This is another, it's, it's an Appalachian folktale uh, from, this version of it comes from Virginia. The Appalachian tales seem to be stories that, um, that would have originated possibly in Ireland or England or around Britain um, and travelled over to America uh, and became their own versions of the stories along the way. So I find that particularly interesting. Obviously, I like to tie in my work with this podcast and so me traveling around this country trying to discover new American folktales as well. But I love the idea of taking uh, a European folktale that has been taken to America and then kind of doing my own re-Irishing that's not a word, but my re-Celticization. Again, stop making up words, but you get what I mean. Uh, the my own version of these again from the roundabout way it's kind of like an inception kind of thing so this is a story uh from i discovered it in the american folktales book by richard chase uh, a collected american folktales and american ballads a great book really great read he's really clear and they're really great versions really tight concise versions of these tales um and this is one that is also in Ireland, it's a Joseph Jacobs collected fairy tale um, called The Cunning Thief. In in America, it's it's one of the collected Jack tales. So the Jack tales are all tales about a boy named Jack, of course. This is very likely connected with the Jack of a lot of British folk tales, and most famously, of course, Jack and the Beanstalk. So it's just a very a cheeky chappy named Jack, and there are loads of stories about him. I've found about four or five brilliant ones in in this book of American folktales. And I was, to be honest, going to just pick one, but they are some of the best stories I've found in the book, so I probably will do a couple of these and maybe change them around a bit to do different versions of them. Uh, but this was this was one of my favourites. This one seemed like the right thing to be doing right now, um, especially with the very with the very strong Irish version of it as well. This is very much... I've read the Irish version, and I do very much prefer the American version, so this... Is definitely it's my own my own take on it, but it is very much the American, the Richard Chase or his his Virginian source certainly uh, their version of this folk tale, and I hope you enjoy it. We'll chat about it a bit more afterwards. 
this is The Cunning Thief on Fireside. The Cunning Thief There once was a boy named Jack, who was in the service of a rich southern gentleman. Jack lived on his master's property in a small shack which he shared with his mother. Jack worked hard, but was paid very little, and treated terribly by the rich old man. Growing increasingly frustrated by barely making ends meet, Jack eventually turned to a life of petty thievery. He would start small, stealing the odd loaf of bread or a chicken from a neighbouring farm. But Jack quickly found he had an incredible aptitude for his new hobby. His mother had always told him one day he would be good at something, and it turned out that that something was cunning, matched with being light-fingered. One day while working inside the big house, Jack found out where the rich man kept all of his money. He had by this stage become so skilled and confident as a thief that Jack decided he would rob it all. As it was such a big job, Jack hired two others to help him with the burglary. The night came, and the three would-be thieves approached a window to the side of the big house. Jack turned to the two men. You two stay out here and keep a lookout. I'll go in first, and if I sense there's a trouble of brune, I'll let out a whistle, and you two will know to run away. So the two men stood guard while Jack lifted the window and slid inside the house. Once inside, Jack made his way over to the bureau, where he had seen the money being deposited. Jack made short work of the lock on the bureau, and to his absolute delight discovered a whole wealth of gold and jewels more than he could even possibly have imagined. Such was Jack's joy that he started dancing and whistling a tune. From the outside of the house, the two accomplices standing guard took this for a warning of trouble, and they both ran away. While this had been an accident, it was a happy one, because it meant that Jack could keep all the loot for himself. With his newfound wealth, Jack stopped going into work each day. After about a week, the rich old man finally noticed Jack's absence and marched down to the shack to find out what had become of his work hand. The old man knocked on the door and Jack's mother answered. Hello there, uh, Mrs. Jack. That son of yours hasn't been working over a week, and I'm here to find out why. Oh, we assumed you knew. You would. Jack doesn't need to go into work anymore. We live as comfortably as you do. That's not possible. I pay Jack's wages. I know how much money he earns. Oh, my son has a new job. A new... as what? Jack's a highway robber now. The rich old man was evidently so rich that he hadn't even noticed that he had been robbed in the first place. Nonetheless... He waited in the house until Jack returned. Well, Jack, your old mother tells me that you're a highwayman now. I do confess it. A darn good one, too, if I do say so myself. Is that so? Well, I have a proposal for you, then. What's that? I want you to sneak into my stable tonight and steal my favorite horse. Either that, or I'll report you to the sheriff and have you shot tomorrow. Jack considered this. If I steal the horse, is the horse mine? Amused, if not impressed by the boy's arrogance, the old man said, Yes, 
So that night, the rich old man heavily locked his stable doors and placed two guards in front of it. The two men built an enormous fire and sat by it. Around midnight, a little old beggar man came hobbling towards the fire. Excuse me, sonnies, but I've been walking all day and night. My bones are weak and tired. I don't ask for no food, but could a poor old beggar man lay down and sleep by that nice big fire of yours? Thinking of no reason to refuse this request, the guards allowed this. The old beggar lay down and began to snore. The guards remained awake and watched the old man. Soon after, the beggar began to rummage in his tattered cloak and pulled out a bottle of rum. He appeared to take a drink and then left the bottle by his head. Once he began to snore again, one guard turned to the other and said, That there's mine. Let's consider it payment for our act of generosity. So the guard swiped the bottle of rum and polished it off. A short time later, the old beggar reached out for his bottle only to find it not there. So he began to rummage in his cloak again, and he pulled out a second bottle, fuller than the last. He appeared to take another swig, placed it by his head, and dozed off once more. The second guard turned to the first. Well, you drank the first one, so I'll have the second. He didn't seem to notice. Seems like he's got an endless supply in that cloak of his. The guard took the bottle of rum, drank it straight, and soon the two guards passed out, blackout drunk. Once he heard the two definite thuds, followed by profuse snoring, Jack removed his disguise, went over to the sleeping bodies, and this time rummaged in their clothes until he pulled out a key. Jack unlocked the stable and invited the magnificent brown stallion out. After saddling and bridling the horse, Jack locked the stable once more and returned the key to the guard's pocket. Then Jack mounted the beast and triumphantly galloped off into the night. The next morning, the rich old man came to inspect the stable. Any trouble last night, boys? Nary a bit, said one guard, trying to mask his furious hangover. Quiet as a church mass, said the second, after getting sick in his mouth. The rich man unlocked the stable and after looking inside, turned round to his useless guards. Quiet as a church mass. You got that right. The damn beast ain't quiet. He's gone. That good-for-nothing Jack. So the rich man marched back down to Jack's shack. Well, Jack, have you got my horse? Nope. What? I ain't got your horse. I got my horse, all right. I see. Well, I got another test for you. That one was obviously too easy. Tonight, I want you to steal all of my brother Dickie's money, or else I'll have you hung. If I get your brother's money, is it mine? asked Jack. You bet. Now as it happened, there was a small chapel close to where the rich man's brother Dickie lived. As Dickie walked home that evening, he heard someone preaching inside. There wasn't any service scheduled that evening, so Dickie walked up and knocked on the door. Who's in there? It is I, the Angel Gabriel. Angel, what will it take for you to take me to heaven with you? All it costs to get into heaven is all of your money. I'll go get it right now. And the rich man's gullible brother ran back home. Jack snuck out the back of the chapel and followed Dickie home. 
When the man had gone inside, Jack crept under a window and overheard the conversation between Dickie and his seemingly much more rational wife. Darling, the angel Gabriel himself is in the chapel, and he says all it takes to buy my way into heaven is all of my money. How do you know it's the angel Gabriel? A man of faith never questions the angel Gabriel. All I'm saying is, maybe take half our money. He's not going to know the difference, is he? And then, if what you say is true, I should be able to buy my way into heaven with the second half. I knew there was a reason I married you. So Dickie went to his safe and retrieved half of his money. By the time he made it back to the chapel, Jack was back preaching inside. Dickie knocked on the door. Angel, I have retrieved all my money. No, you haven't. That is only half your money. The mortified Dickie sprinted back to his house. He ran into his wife. He knew. The angel knew. He knew I only had half the money with me. Well, if that's the case, he must be real, said Dickie's wife. Take the rest of the money and go on to heaven. I'll see you there. Jack would have probably thought this was all very touching, but he hadn't followed Dickie back to the house the second time. He knew he wouldn't pull any fast ones. When Dickie returned with the rest of the money, Jack said it in his most heavenly voice, Get me a sack for to take you to heaven in. Dickie got one, climbed inside. Jack came out, tied the top of the sack tight, hoisted it over his shoulder, and walked it to Dickie's pig pen. He flung the sack in the muck and skipped on home with his hefty winnings. The morning came, and the rich man came to his brother's home. He asked his wife, Where's Dickie? Dickie went to God. He killed him? What? What do you mean? The angel Gabriel came to Dickie and took him to God. <sighs> he didn't happen to take all his money with him too, did he? How did you know that? How did I... Jack! While the rich old man went off to find Jack again, the farmhands went to feed the pigs and were more than surprised to see a sack wriggling in the mud. They unfastened it and out fell their master, Dickie. Is this heaven? Needless to say, poor old Dickie never came back from that one. In the meantime, the rich man had arrived at Jack's home. Morning, Jack. Do you have my brother Dickie's money? Not his money. I got my own. You're something else. I got another challenge for you. I was thinking there might be a third task. I want you to steal my 500 cattle tonight, or I'll have you shot for sure. No problem. That night, the rich man had two of his most trusted hands move his 500 cattle from one pasture to another. Jack, getting particularly clever and ruthless at this stage, or you could say cunning, killed him a sheep, stripped naked, covered himself in blood, and lay his body on a tree branch. When the cattle came across this site, they became frightened and scattered all over. The wranglers weren't exactly delighted with this site either, but nonetheless managed to calm, collect, and herd the cattle back together. When they carried on, Jack climbed down from the tree, snuck past the herd, and hung himself from another tree, this time by the ankles. When the cattle wranglers came across this site, one said to the other, Do you know what? Forget this. I'm out of here. 
I should point out at this stage that one of these wranglers was Irish. The two wranglers ran off into the night, and this time it was Jack who calmed, collected, and herded the cattle. But this time it was right back to his newly constructed farm. The next morning, the rich man didn't even have to ask if Jack had succeeded or not, as there was a very familiar 500 cattle right beside Jack's shack. I suppose those are my cattle then. Not yours, but not mine, but yours. Yeah, I know the bit, but this time I've got you. I've got one more challenge. Oh, come on now. These things always work in rules of three. This would be a fourth task. How many times do I have to prove myself a cunning thief? Just one more. If you do this, I'll give you the deed to my house. And if I fail you, I'll have you shot, yes. Naturally, this was too good an opportunity for Jack to pass up. What do I have to do? Steal the nightdress off my wife's back. That's dark. You're the cunning thief, son, not me. Things had taken a turn. And then they took a further turn. As Jack had known of a man who had been buried the day before, so Jack went and dug up his body. He brought the fresh corpse to the rich man's house. From beneath the window, Jack raised the head of the dead man up. He then quickly pulled it back down. Then he slowly raised it back up and bang! The old man had been sitting in his armchair with a loaded shotgun waiting for his nemesis to appear. But of course Jack had suspected this. And the only head that had been blown off was the head of an already dead man. Jack leaves the headless body. The rich man comes out, sees the remains and dances for joy. He runs back into his wife. I got that son of a gun. But I better go bury his body in the woods, or it'll be me that gets hung or shot. While the rich man dragged off the corpse, Jack waited a while, covered himself in blood, again with the blood, and crept into the house. He went upstairs and climbed into the bed beside the rich man's wife. In his best impression, he said, We won't be seeing no more of that lovable rogue Jack. I'm glad to hear it, said the wife. Gosh darn it, said Jack. I forgot to wash the blood off, and I just got blood all over your nightdress. You did? Oh, that's all right, dear. I'll change into a clean one, and you can wash up. Jack waited until she returned, went to the wash basket to retrieve the bloodied nightdress, and made his escape. Soon after, of course, the rich old man came back and climbed in bed beside his wife. Well, that's the last we'll see of him. I better wash this blood off. Did you still not wash that blood off? What? Were you not just in here covered in blood? The rich old man didn't need to hear any more. Jack! The rich old man returned to Jack's shack for the last time, only to be presented with his own wife's nightdress. The old man was forced to hand over the deed to his house. And now Jack is richer than the rich man. So Jack is now the rich man, and the rich man is nothing. But rich or poor, Jack will always be the cunning thief. The end. How about that? That was The Cunning Thief on Fireside. Quite a different tale now. Takes a couple of turns there, I have to say. Um, What I really, right off the bat, what I really like about this story is... From one point of view, there's no, shall we say, three-act structure to it. There's, as, as 
to be fair, there isn't in a lot of these fairy tales, but like what is interesting about this one is the journey is so is so impressive about it. Like for stars, like the rule of three thing, which I make a joke about in it, like is a real thing. It is a rule of three nearly always, especially in fairy tales, especially children's fairy tales. So it's very interesting that there's a fourth tale take here. And I was going to condense it. I was thinking, like, would I cut one of them? But I liked each of them. I liked each display. Each was totally different. They're almost like different mini episodes, especially the story of of the brother Dicky. Like, that's almost <laughs> you kind of feel bad about that. That that's totally left. It's like, what happened to Dicky? Um, we just never find out. Like, he stole all his money, left him covered in a pig pen. Did the wife leave him? Did the wife leave the rich man now that he wasn't rich anymore? It's it's great. I really like it. Um, I always get given out to for just saying that I really like things, but obviously I pick, I pick tales that I really like. Um, but yeah, this is a story that you often see. What's great about the Richard Chase American Folk Tales book is he introduces each tale and says the different versions of it and says where they've been heard before. And I always, obviously, it always sparks my interest initially when I see if there's an Irish version of it. But this one actually has an ancient Greek version of it. Um, Herodotus, who's considered the father of history, I think, like, a pardon historians now, I kind of will look this up now, I think he's like 5th or 6th century. Yeah, Herodotus was 4th, 5th, I don't know how the centuries work when it's BC. I, to be fair, had thought he was AD, so that shows how much I knew about it. But yeah, he's considered the father of history, and he has a version of a cunning thief. Such a universal story, to be fair. Normal, normal bloke, outsmarts, rich prick. Sorry, I first swear in there. This is a PG, it's a PC podcast, PG podcast. That's it. Um, but it was really cool. It's one of the first times I've seen that of because folk tales overall, to be fair, they're quite recent. A lot of them. There's. There's a real surge in like late 18th century, early 19th century. That's obviously, that's obviously peak grim time. So that's why there's so much of that. And in Ireland, particularly, like it's it's the big difference between the myths and the folk tales is that the myths are thousands and thousands of years old, and then the folk tales, which a lot of which are very connected and rooted in the mythology, they're from the last 150 to 200, 250 years. Um, and of course there's a lot of main reasons for that it's all around the times of like the development of national identity and post famine is a big one as well a big time for storytelling as well um, and wanting some kind of comfort in that so but I just find it very interesting so it's always cool when you see anything any story rooted uh, that far back because it goes I've spoken before about Joseph Campbell the great comparative mythologist and his uh, work on the monomyth, how all stories are the one story. It's the hero's journey, how Hercules and Jesus Christ and Cucullin and right the way up to Star Wars, that it's all the same story. Um, and there's whether you buy into that or not, I personally, I've I've explored it a good bit. I find it's, it's very, very fascinating, especially if you do any kind of writing or creative output. It's really, really interesting. His book, The Hero of a Thousand Faces, um, I think that's what it's called. It's really, really good read. It's dense, but uh, it's great writing. He was actually obsessed, a real Joyce obsessive himself, Joseph Campbell. And he wrote this book on unlocking Finnegan's Wake, unlocking Joyce's nigh unreadable 
um, text, which I've always had an interest in checking out one day. Um, Dan Harmon, who created Rick and Morty, he famously is an obsessive with this monomyth, which if you know Dan Harmon and hadn't known that before, if you know Rick and Morty, you mightn't think that Rick and Morty is the kind of show that would follow a very strict hero's journey kind of thing, but every, nearly every single episode of Rick and Morty um, operates like that. There's one... There's an episode that Rick that Dan Harmon considers to be the worst episode of Rick and Morty ever, and that's one that like wasn't written by him that doesn't follow his obsessive fascist story structure. Um, I forget what it is, but I remember thinking it's actually one of the better ones. He's just tapped in the head, but that's the cost of him being a fantastic writer, which I think he is. Um, but apparently, um, this was coming out. This I was listening to this recently. Um, again, people who listen to Rick and Morty or watch Rick and Morty, and I promise I'll stop talking about Rick and Morty very soon. Um, but those who watch it will know that um, season that the waits for the seasons are always incredibly long. Um, there can be a couple of years between them, which is frustrating, but again, I'd rather the quality was good than they rushed them and that the show dipped. But apparently this season four will be the first year Dan Harmon abandons the, the monomyth, the, the egg, the story egg, I think is what he calls it, his version. He's developed his own version of it, so it'll be a lot more chaotic, a lot more anarchic, and which uh, for a fourth season of a show I think is actually a great idea because the worst thing that could happen to Rick and Morty would be that it would become stale and for a show as creative and inventive and just brilliantly dark and utterly absolutely hilarious would be a real shame to happen um, so if that wasn't enough of a plug and you haven't watched it before do check out Rick and Morty there's actually it's it's worthwhile if you are interested in folklore and mythology it's really work, worthwhile looking from that it satirises um, it's mainly a satire of, of sci-fi, um, but it dips into fantasy and folklore quite a bit as well, um, which is always gas. Um, but that, I think that just about wraps us up there. Um, it was a nice, I hope you enjoyed the story, uh, The Cunning Thief. Um, it was a really enjoyable one to write. It's funny, actually, like, I... After the last couple, the last couple of episodes of Fireside have been a bit shorter because um, the story has been a bit shorter, and that just I I just kind of adapt the story and and see how it goes. I don't say like, oh, this will be. I'll cut it off at a certain state, or I'll try and stretch it to a certain state. I I don't try to do either of those. I just try to keep it as natural as possible. As as it's happened, the way it's been going, the episodes have been growing certainly. Um, or they were kind of certainly before I went away, uh, which I was really happy about, but that felt very natural. It felt like I wasn't forcing that. I don't hate to drag them out um, longer than they need to be. But I also, I like I like the podcast to be substantial, and I would hope that it would grow, grow in length and in quality and get less random and all over the place as the post, post story sections can be. Uh, but the just even reading that story there when I was typing it out, it was significantly longer than the last story was. This is the first story of Fionn McCool. But it's it's dialogue. The way you'd be writing dialogue, dialogue really, really stretches out uh, a few pages. Whereas like the myths are often just prose and just text, uh, which look which takes up less page, but it takes much longer to read. Actually, before you go, I will say that it was the adaptation of this story was a bit of a race against the clock last night. I was writing it on we normally sleep on a tour bus. I'm recording this. Um, I'm recording this from my hotel room in Orlando now because we have a day off. Uh, but normally we travel by tour bus. 
And after the show yesterday, I stayed up and I was writing the episode. And I have the uh, the Richard Chase folklore book uh, downloaded on my Kindle. And so I was kind of working from that beside me. And how I usually adapt the stories is I uh, read the story like once or twice. And then I try and, for as much as I can, go from memory because that's, you know, then you really see what sticks with you. And you also your own version of it really comes through. But I keep it kind of beside me as a, a reference guide, certainly. But for some reason, it's it froze on me. Just, it froze on a page. And if you have a Kindle, you know, there's only one button on it. So there's only kind of so much you can do. Like, I looked up how to restart it, and it said, like, hold it for, hold the power button for, like, seven seconds, and then hold it for 40 seconds. I did both of those loads. Nothing happened, still frozen. Um, so I basically just have to wait for it to, run out of battery it seems and the Kindle battery life lasts for weeks well hopefully with it just on permanently it'll be days or possibly shorter Um, but luckily that freeze happened just as I was coming to the end of the story Um, and I was fairly certain what happened in the end or certainly with my own because I remember it was it's such a Again, getting back to it being not a great like three three act structure, it more just being a sequence of events, and it's more how it plays out than what happens itself. But just that last sentence that I made my own version of, but just that Jack, the rich man, gave Jack the deed to his house, and now Jack is richer than the rich man, and it's it's fairly brutal. It gets brutal. The killing of the sheep, and the covering the blood and the hanging, like again, real, real vivid imagery, but hardcore. And then you get into the territory of grave digging, of the head being blown off, of sneaking into the bed with the wife. As Jack says in it, that's dark, but that's a good tale for you. So I'll go on now. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed this week's episode. If you're a continuing listener, thank you so much for continuing to listen. And if you're new, I hope you enjoyed your first episode. Why not go back to the beginning? Uh, see what we're building up to now. Episode 17, we're nearly approaching that 20. Um, I will be, I'm only in America for another 10 or so days, and then I'll be back to the beautiful surroundings of the Headstuff Podcast Studio. We'll be back to full studio quality. I want to thank Headstuff for their continuing to put this podcast out. Thank you so much to my editor, Jamie, for continuing to edit this uh, while I'm away. And um, thank you all for listening again. If you want to contact me, uh, please do so on Instagram at OlahanSolo, O-L-O-H-A-N-S-O-L-O, all one word. Um, I do love getting the messages through. It's great to hear from strangers and old friends and new friends. It makes it all feel worthwhile. It makes it feel like I'm doing something that people like. Um, So I'll keep going now. But I'll talk to you all next week. Next week, we'll be diving right back in to the Fenian cycle, to Fionn McCool, and we'll be getting to know and the bold salmon of knowledge. So I'll see you next week on Fireside. Goodbye. This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. If you want to support this podcast and get a full ad-free episode, sign up to Headstuff Plus. 